This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and these are the words that he pens. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Four main thoughts on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. Write this down. Number one, God's unfathomable love reassures you that nothing can stand against you. In Christ Jesus, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, redeemed by his pardoning blood, God's unfathomable love reassures you that nothing can stand against you. Find verse 31 there in your Bible with your eyes. Paul writes these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, it's important on the onset here that we answer a question. The question is, what does Paul mean when he says, what shall we say to all these things? What shall we say to all these things? Another way to state that might be, what conclusion do we arrive at in light of the preceding truths? Now let your eyes just glance back up in Romans chapter 8 there, specifically to verses 28 through 30, because here are those things that Paul speaks about. In verses 28 through 30, we learn that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Furthermore, we learn that God foreknew or foreloved us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. He effectually called us to himself. He justified us, declaring us righteous in his sight. And he has promised to glorify these weak, frail frames of ours on the day that we stand before him in glory. It's in light of those truths that Paul says, what shall we say to these things? What conclusion do we arrive at in light of these wonderful truths? Well, Paul's conclusion is this. If God is for us, all those things being a grand declaration of the truth and the reality that God is for us in Christ Jesus, then who can be against us? If God has justified us and united us to his Son, 
then who is there who can unsettle us in the least? The obvious answer to Paul's question is that no one and nothing can be against us who are sealed in Christ Jesus. Sin and death are our two greatest enemies, and praise be to God that in Christ they have both been conquered. It is finished, declared Jesus from the cross in John chapter 19. Finished, over with, completed, done. We'll see Paul flesh out the logic of this truth in verses 32 through 39. But before we get there, I want you to notice a few things regarding Paul's conclusion here in verse 31. First, it's important to note that when Paul says, if God is for us, he is in no way doubtful of the reality of this statement. You see, if does not convey uncertainty. Rather, it conveys an unshakable truth. As a matter of fact, the text might be better translated since God is for us or because God is for us, who can be against us? You see, all throughout the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we see that God is for his people. He is our protector, he's our guardian, he's our refuge, he is our salvation. I love how David speaks about this throughout the Psalms. Specifically, Psalm 27, verse 1, David declares, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, and whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me and my heart shall not fear, though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Why? Because God is for me. God is for me. Likewise, in Psalm 118, the psalmist says, Out of my distress I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. That word triumph will appear again in our text. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You see, friends, Paul is not asking a question here in verse 31 so much as he is making a declaration. And the declaration is this, since God is for us in Christ Jesus, who then can be against us? Secondly, it's important that we know that Paul is not trying to paint an easy picture of the Christian life. As we'll see in the following verses, Christians today and Christians throughout redemptive history have undergone significant, incredible circumstances, difficult circumstances. What Paul is saying is that all the forces of hell, as evil as they are, cannot sever us from the saving work of Christ that was begun in those who have been called according to his purpose. In other words, nothing can rob you from your future glorification. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. It's not a question. It's not left up to debate. It's not an if. It is sure and it is certain. Third, it's important that we answer the question, who are the us? In verse 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, friends, here's the reality, and it's not a popular message in the world or the culture that we live in today, but the reality 
is that God isn't for all people. Many times in the Old Testament, God says of the wicked nations like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, I am against you. I'm against you. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says that we were all at one time, and those who don't know Christ are still at this very moment children of wrath. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so who then are the us in verse 31 that God is for? Well, they are those who are spoken of in the preceding verses, specifically verse 30, as the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, and the glorified. Those individuals are the us that Paul speaks about in verse 31. And so let me ask you, friends, are you a part of the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, and the glorified? Several chapters back in Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. You see, there is no peace with God unless you have been justified by God, declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. The reality for those of us that are in Christ, that are a part of the us, is that if God were not for us, we too would still be dead in our, tre- our trespasses and sins. You see, in verse 31, Paul is answering this question. Is there any conceivable power that can prevent us from ultimately arriving at our glorification? And the answer is no. Why Because God is for us. You see the question and the answer? Is there anything that can keep us from our future glorification? Paul says no. Why? Because God in Christ Jesus is for us. God's unfathomable love reassures you that in Christ Jesus nothing can stand against you. Number two, write this down. God's unfathomable love reassures you that he will provide every necessary spiritual blessing. Find verse 32 there in your Bible. Paul writes these words. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you notice here that the first place that Paul points us to to assure us that God is for us, that God indeed loves us, and that his purposes cannot be thwarted for us is the cross. That's where Paul points us. That's where he encourages us to fix our gaze is upon the cross of Christ Jesus. And we need not gloss over that lightly. The cross is the first place and the only place that we need to look when we are tempted to think that God's love for us has in some way waned, weakened, or is diminished. The first and the only place that you need to look is the cross. Don't look at you. Don't look at your performance. Don't look at your ability. Don't look at others. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. 
The cross is the first and the only place we need to look when the enemy turns up the accusations and heaps condemnation upon us. When we're tempted to think that God is not for us, we need to remember that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us. The measure of God's love for us is displayed on Calvary's cross. God's eternal plan was to demonstrate his love by crushing his son for sinners. Paul reminds us of that very truth just back a few chapters in Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates, that's how God shows, that's how God reveals, that's how God exposes his great love for us is that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guilty, vile, wicked, wretched, filthy, marred by the fall. God demonstrated his love for us in that he crushed his son for us. Notice who delivered Jesus up to die. It wasn't Judas for money. It wasn't Pilate for fear. Nor was it the Jews for envy. But it was the Father for love. It was the Father for love. God crushed his son. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him, Christ Jesus, the iniquity, the weight of sin of us all. And just a few verses later, Isaiah says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who killed Jesus? Answer, God did. God crushed his son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite commentators, says this, the father did not hold back from Christ, that is, on the cross, anything that was a part of the process by which he could save us. Everything that was essential to our salvation came upon and rested on the son of God. Everything necessary to secure our salvation was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that God did not spare his own son. It's interesting to note that the same word spared appears in the story of Abraham and Isaac back in Genesis chapter 22. You see, Isaac was an Old Testament picture of Christ, a foreshadowing of God offering his son on Calvary's hill. Abraham's willingness to offer up his son is a beautiful picture of the father's willingness to offer up Christ for us. Likewise, Isaac's willingness to be the sacrifice is a picture of Jesus' willingness to go to the cross. You see, the wonder of Calvary is not only the love of the heavenly father that it displays, but also the love of the son in his compliance with the father's will, despite the unimaginable horror of what it would cost him. That's the scandal of the gospel, and it's glorious. We know that in the case of Abraham, God stepped in and provided a ram in Isaac's place. This is the point, however, where the analogy of Abraham and Isaac and the father and the son changes from a comparison to a contrast. 
God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. I love the great hymn, and I know that many of you do as well, How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art captures the reality in these words. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Not only did God not spare his own son, but he actively and willingly delivered him up. You see, it's one thing just not to spare. It's one thing just to keep him from the horror of his wrath. It's another thing altogether to deliver him up to it, to subject him to it for us. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, God made him, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at verse 32 there again. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Here's the phrase that I want you to concentrate on. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Paul argues here from the greater to the lesser. God has given us his son, the greater. Well, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, the lesser. If God has given us what is unimaginable in weight and glory in Christ Jesus, will he not provide for every lesser need that we have? And the answer is, you better believe it. Absolutely. God gave his best for us. Now that we are his children by faith in Christ alone, Will he not also provide for us all the blessings that are required to finish the work that he started? He certainly will. He certainly will. Now, it's important that we're clear about what all things means here. Because little phrases like all things have been ripped from their context. And uh, teachers have done all kinds of theological gymnastics with little phrases like all things and imported or imposed upon little phrases like all things that all things could never have meant. So it's important that we're clear about what this little phrase means. There's a lot of bad theology out there when we start talking about God giving us all things. This is in no way meant to uh, portray the picture or encourage us that we can start naming and claiming. In other words, this promise is not a blank check. John Murray offers us wise insight when he says, all things is an obvious example of an expression in universal terms that has a restrictive sense. Universal terms, all things, yet with a restrictive sense. I think that's helpful. All things brothers and sisters, means everything necessary to bring us home to complete fruition. To complete the work he started. To bring the redeemed all the way to glory. 
God withholds nothing that we need in the process of our sanctification. Every grace necessary to get us from where we are today safely home to glory is provided. And not only is it provided, but it is provided in abundance. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Likewise, 2 Peter chapter 2 reminds us that his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need, we have as it pertains to life and godliness. Not a blank check, restrictive in its sense. But everything that we have to get us from where we are today to glory is provided for us in Christ. God isn't going to deliver up his son for you and then not provide every other spiritual blessing that you need to be conformed into the image of his son. And so when you're tempted in any way to think that God is not for you or that his acceptance of you is waning, brother, sister, look at the cross. Gaze upon the beauty of the cross. God can never show his love in a greater manner or measure than he did on Calvary's hill when he crushed his son for us. What more could he do that he has not already done to convince you of the surety of your salvation if you're in Christ? Child, be assured that if I have not spared my greatest treasure in saving you, you can be confident in the fact that I'll provide everything else you need in the terms of your sanctification to get you home to glory. Well, there's another question that's answered in verse 32. The question is this. Is there any danger that God's love toward us might change or be diminished? It's a question that Paul is answering here for us in verse 32. Is there, is there any way possible? Is it conceivable in the slightest? Is there any danger that God's love toward me might change or in some way be diminished or shrink? Paul's answer, that can never happen. Why? Because he has given us his greatest treasure. He's given us his greatest treasure. Number three, write this down. God's unfathomable love reassures you that your accuser has been forever defeated and that he, God, overrules any condemnation. Find verses 33 and 34 there in your Bible. Paul writes these words, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. I don't know if you see it at first glance of the text there, but Paul is issuing a challenge here in verses 33 and 34. He is essentially asking this question. If there is anyone who can step forward and bring any accusation against those whom God has declared righteous, stand up. Stand up. It's a challenge. Having said that, we know that there are many accusers, correct? We know that our conscience accuses us. The world certainly accuses us. 
And Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is always looking for an opportunity to prosecute us. Speaking of the accuser, John in Revelation chapter 12 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. What does Satan accuse us of? He accuses us of being unfaithful. He accuses us of breaking our promises. He accuses us of sins too many or too vast to number. He accuses us of all of our failures, our waning zeal, our prayerlessness, our hypocrisy, and the list goes on and on and on and on. If there is a dart that he can throw at you, rest assured, he will. He will seek to, try to accuse you at every turn of your life. He asks this question, how can you be such a failure in light of the gospel that you say you believe? I mean, tell me, Christian, how can you even call yourself a Christian? How can you even call yourself a believer? How can you even call yourself a follower of Christ or a child of the risen king when your failures are so vast? Uh, Perhaps, perhaps you're just disillusional. Perhaps you just think that you're a follower of Christ. Perhaps that you just think that you're justified. Perhaps that you just think that you're on your way to a future glory. Uh, Perhaps you've overestimated God's forgiveness and the grand nature of his love for you. Perhaps that isn't quite as true as you think it is. If you give him a dart, he'll throw it. John MacArthur says this. He says, It's not that the accusations made against believers by Satan and the unbelieving world are always false. Catch that? It's not that the accusations are always false. Yes, at times we are hypocrites. At times we are prayerless. At times we are faithless. At times we are fickle. At times our love for Christ does wane. It's not that these accusations are always false. But even when a charge against us is untrue, or is true rather, it's never sufficient grounds for our damnation because all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by the blood of Christ and we stand clothed in his righteousness. Satan, I don't stand in my own righteousness. I don't stand on my own merit. I don't stand on my own works. I have the imputed righteousness of Christ. I stand on his merit, and I stand on his finished and completed work. I've been justified. And those whom God justifies, he will one day soon glorify. Even though our consciences and the world and Satan may accuse us, they have no legal ability to condemn us of our sin, How is this? How is it that Satan's accusations against us have no legal weight? 
Well, again, it's because God does not relate to you or I on the basis of our own merit, but on the merit of another. Aren't you glad that your salvation does not depend upon you? I'm certainly glad that my salvation does not depend upon me. I know me. If the surety of our salvation depended in the slightest on our own ability to love, worship, and honor God as we ought, we would all, every single one of us, without exception, would be ruined, condemned, and left without any hope of assurance of final glory. But praise be to God that he saves us and relates to us not on the basis of our own works or of our own merit, but on the merit of Christ and his perfect righteousness. Because this is true, if you are in Christ Jesus, God will never again bring you into the courtroom for prosecution. That's the implication of the text here. Jesus said this in John 5, 24. He said, truly, truly, I tell you. I've said it before and I'll say it again because it bears repeating. When you hear the words truly, truly in your Bible, your ears need to perk up. Jesus is saying, really, really, get this, get this. Don't miss this, don't miss this. Don't gloss over, don't close your eyes. Read this, understand it, apply it, and let your heart and your mind be saturated in what I'm getting ready to say. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears these words of mine and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. You're not brought into the courtroom for prosecution anymore because you've passed from death to life. When Satan accuses us of failing to meet God's perfect standard, Jesus looks at the Father and says, I paid for that. Our advocate in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, declares it's been paid for. In full. You see, our surety of salvation is grounded in the objectivity of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and that never changes. It never changes. Let Satan hurl all the charges that he dares. Here's the reality you are just as justified on the basis of the finished work of Christ today as much as any day to come in the future. I shared some of those fiery darts of accusation with you. Satan loves to hurl. How can you believe that God loves you? How can you believe that God is for you? When you survey all the difficult circumstances for your life, you have cancer. How can you say that God is for you? You've lost a child. How, How can you say that God is for you? You're a widow or a widower. God has ripped your spouse. How can you say How can you say that God is for you? How can you say that God loves you? You lost your job? The bank is sending foreclosures? How can you say that? Or how about this fiery dart? Your sins are vast. You have no good defense. What do you have to say for yourself? You say you're forgiven, but how long will God put up with your failure? Maybe God has forgiven you up to this point, but at some point, where where do you reach the watershed moment where forgiveness ends and God washes his hands of you? Or how about this one? Given your track record, Satan might say here, what hope is there that you'll persevere to the end? 
I mean, if you can't even get your life in order, if you can't get your ducks in a row, if your I's aren't dotted and your T's aren't crossed in the Christian life, then what hope do you have that you will persevere to the end? That you'll even make it to glory? He's relentless. Relentless. And here's what Paul wants us to know. Here's where Paul wants us to fix our eyes when Satan hurls these fiery darts at us. Look back at your Bible, verse 34 here. Paul reminds us of Christ's redemptive work as the guarantee that no charge against us will stand. Look at verse 34. We see that Christ died. This this is Jesus' fourfold ministry in our defense. We see that he died. He bore the wrath and the condemnation that we deserved. Furthermore, he was raised. He proved his victory over sin and death. Jesus' death would have been of no avail in fulfilling its intended purpose apart from the resurrection. The resurrection also demonstrates the Father's approval and the Son's accomplishment. You see, the resurrection was the Father saying, well done, my Son. Jesus' last words on the cross, John 19, it is finished. The resurrection, the Father's declaration, well done, my Son. Well done. Christ died. He was raised. Look there at verse 34 again. He's seated at the right hand of God. This is a picture of our triumphant king resting in his victory. The work is finished. You see, in the Old Testament, priests never sat down. Their work was never complete. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that priests stand daily in their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over. And then he, he, he adds, those sacrifices can never take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a picture of our victorious king. And then lastly, we see there in verse 34 that he intercedes for us. He prays for us. Not only does the Spirit intercede for us, but Christ also intercedes for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. He lives today to make intercession for them. What does the glorified Christ pray for you, brother or sister, this very moment? It's certain that every need of the believer and every grace required to complete redemption are brought within the scope of Christ's intercession for you. His ministry continues daily. Jesus' ministry is not finished. The salvific part of Jesus' work has been completed, but Jesus' ministry continues on today in that he intercedes for you. He's our advocate before the Father. He represents us before the throne of God so that we don't have to represent ourselves. Nothing serves to verify the intimacy and the constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people. Nothing assures us, the bride of Christ, the redeemed of his unchanging love, more than the tenderness 
with which his heavenly priesthood bespeaks and particularly as it comes to expression in his intercession for us. How tender, how kind, how compassionate is our Savior. He prays for us. He prays for us. Well, there's a question in verses 34, or 33 and 34, rather. That Paul is answering, I believe. The question is this. Is it possible that someone or something might finally convict us of sin and bring us into condemnation? Is it possible? Could it be true in the slightest that something or someone might finally convict us of sin and bring us into condemnation? Paul's answer, no. Your surety rests on Christ's righteousness for you. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. If you're in Christ, you've been justified, declared righteous. Number four, and lastly this morning, God's unfathomable love reassures you that nothing can sever you from his son. God doesn't shelter Christians from the difficulties of life. Many of you can testify to that truth. God does not shelter his children from the difficulties of living in a Genesis 3 fallen world. What he does is give you all the grace necessary and sufficient to meet those trials and those difficulties with Christ-like poise. That's what he does. That's what he does. He assures us that the difficulties of life are working for us and not against us. That means that trials, far from being evidence that God has deserted us, are really evidence that he loves us and is committed to conforming us into the image of his son. You see, brothers and sisters, when, when we endure difficult circumstances by faith and we draw near to God, he draws near to us. We need not fret about tomorrow. We need not live life crippled by fear. Christ has secured our victory and we are more than conquerors. As a matter of fact, the text tells us literally that we are hyper-conquerors or are super-conquerors in Christ. There's three kind of final principles that flow out of verses 35 through 39. Let me give them to you in conclusion this morning. Verses 35 and 36, I think the principle there is that we should expect troubles. We should expect trials in this fallen world. Look at 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, I'm convinced that Paul is writing autobiographically here in verse 35. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that Paul has experienced every bit of what he is saying here. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul said, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The Son of Man was rejected, slandered, beaten, mocked, imprisoned, and crucified. And so the question is, are you and our I, friends, willing to share in his sufferings? Sufferings and trials 
are not evidence that God has forsaken you. They're not evidence that God has left you. They're not evidence that God has uh, a waning love for you or waning affections for you or will in some way fail to get you to glory. No. Trials and difficulties and persecutions, rather, are where God readies you to stand before the bridegroom of heaven one day, perfect without spot or blemish or any defect. Expect troubles in this fallen world. The second principle that we see here is that we need to rejoice in the fact that we are super conquerors in Christ. Look at verse 37. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, in our patiently bearing the trials of life, we are not only conquerors, but more than conquerors, literally triumphers. I know it doesn't sound good, but that's what Paul is saying here. We are the triumphant ones in Christ, and he leads us in triumphal procession, right? All the way to glory. We're more than conquerors first because we conquer with little loss. You see, many conquests are dearly bought. But what do suffering saints lose? Well, the only thing that we lose is that which gold loses in the furnace, and that's the dross. That's all we lose. All we lose is the dross, the sin that so easily entangles us. Secondly, we conquer with great gain. You see, the spoils we are given in Christ are exceedingly rich, glory and honor and peace, and most importantly, a crown of righteousness that does not fade away. Rejoice in the fact that you are a super conqueror in Christ. And then lastly, in Christ, there is no condemnation, but there is also no separation. Look at verses 38 and 39 here. Paul says, for I am sure, I memorized this back in the NIV when I was a very young Christian. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us or sever us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, nothing in the created order is able to separate us from the love of God. Again, let me let Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, speak here. He says, what matters most is God's love to us, not our love to God. Our love is weak and it's frail and it's fallible. It wanes and it waxes, it comes and it goes. But thanks be to God that my salvation does not depend on me, but on God's love to me. Not on my frail grasp of him, but upon his strong grip on me. I love that. Here's the question that Paul is answering in verses 35 through 39. The question is, is it possible that we may fail to attain glorification because of our own weaknesses when we face the trials of life? Is it possible that somewhere along the path, journeying through life, that we may be ejected from the path and that we may fail to attain glorification because of our own weaknesses, which we know are many, 
when we face the trials of life? And Paul answers here, he says, no. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We have the assurance that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the love of Christ I stand. Friends, do you know this crucified, risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning king? Do you know him by grace through faith alone? Do you know him not on the basis of your own work, not on the basis of your own righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's work and his righteousness alone? Not on the basis of what you bring to the table or contribute to the equation, but based solely upon what he brings to the table in his perfection. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of God? Repent means to turn your back on your sin and to turn your face upon Christ. Repent of your sin, agree with God about your sin, and believe. Put your faith in Christ. Not your faith in your own works and your own merit and your own righteousness added to the righteousness of Christ, but all of your eggs in one basket. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the glories of the gospel that are so clearly uh, proclaimed by Paul in Romans chapter 8. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we have great assurance that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you that all uh, all that we've been given in Christ is not dependent upon our ability to keep it, Uh, but is dependent upon Christ's uh, giving it to us and his finished work for us. Father, I pray if there's a person here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, uh, that they would come to know Jesus savingly. I pray that they would turn from their sins, that they would cast uh, all their sins upon uh, the foot of the cross and that they would leave them there and they would receive by faith all of Jesus' righteousness for them. It's the most scandalous exchange that has ever taken place on the face of the planet. But God, you graciously give. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.